there's a huge duty of care that we have to athletes um, so that they, they feel ready to pursue life after sport and feel good about their time in sport. So in Atlanta, we're all euphoric. We've won the bronze medal. You know, jumping around, you're crying, you're happy. You know, celebrating with family, and then silver medal. You've lost your final match. And who celebrates that in the normal world of sport? It just didn't go the way I planned. And there's an assumption that you you win three Olympic medals. It's something you should be happy and proud of. But but I wasn't, and I knew that I needed to get help. The resources are there and we do everything we can to, to let the athletes know that they're there. But at the end of the day, it's still the, the uptake, the onus is on the athlete to know that it's there and, and take advantage of it. Welcome to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport. Hello and welcome to Onside, I'm Tim Gable. Well, what a week we've had in sport with the announcement that Brisbane is in the box seat to host the 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games after being named the International Olympic Committee's preferred bid. It was great to see crowds at the Australian Tennis Open and at the rugby at the weekend as we look forward now to the start of the NRL and AFL seasons. Sport Integrity Australia's National Integrity Framework will be launched this month. The framework was developed in response to the findings of the Wood Review, which recommended a streamlined approach to all national integrity matters. It's a suite of policies that sets out the expectations and behaviours for everyone involved in sport regarding safeguarding of children, member protection, competition manipulation, sports wagering and the misuse of drugs and medicines. In today's episode, we take an in-depth look at the issue of mental health in sport. We talk to clinical psychologist Mary Spillane, the AIS's mental health lead, about the prevalence of mental health issues and depression in sport, sport's duty of care to ensure the well-being of athletes, the silence that can accompany depression and what's being done to combat the issue. We also talk to our Olympic heroes, basketballer Rachel Spawn and swimmer Daniel Kowalski about their own battles with mental health, the disappointment of silver, the impact of injury, scrutiny and being burdened by expectation. In our segment from the Highlight Reel, we relive the 1500 metres freestyle event at the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games, where Daniel snatched silver. First up though, Mary Spillane, on the critical role the AIS is playing to improve the mental health of athletes in Australia. Well, Mary, firstly, just having a look at the prevalence of depression in sport, you know, how prevalent is it uh, given the research that you've done and the, and the work that you do with sporting teams? So at the AIS, we, we have looked into, into the prevalence of, of mental health issues, including including depression in athletes. And, and what we've found is that around one in three athletes are experiencing symptoms that, that would um, meet criteria for intervention. So, so one in three, essentially, is, is the number that we believe. Do you think it's on the rise? Look, the, the data would suggest that it is on the rise, uh, particularly in the, the general community. So the general community, we, we know it's on the rise and, and we believe that athletes uh, or that the rates in athletes are the same. So 
um, I guess it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of question though because so much has changed in in recent years, even in the last decade, around approaches to mental health and, and depression. So there's a lot more awareness out there now about mental health symptoms and 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 what people might experience. So generally we think that people might actually be more likely to get help. So whether or not it's depression is actually increasing or there's more awareness, you know, is is an interesting question, but I think it's probably a bit of both. Do you think that uh, social media is a trigger for this and possibly leads to people, you know, you know, suffering from depression and, and really battling a mental health issue? Yes, certainly. So for people who, particularly for people who already have some some symptoms or some mental health issues, social media can be, can be really damaging. Um, and, and I suppose if you think about it in terms of you know, us as the general population, if, if you have a bad day at work and and you, you go home and someone's written about how bad you were at work that day, it's it's it would be pretty distressing. And when we think about how often athletes are exposed to that kind of that kind of um, media and and those sorts of comments, then you know, I think it's a significant stressor. The silence that can accompany depression that that's a hidden factor here, but also the fact that, that males tend not to talk about depression as much as females. And I guess that is a, an issue that you have to overcome in your work, particularly with teams like the Essendon Football Club and the Australian Cricketers Association, etc. Yes, for sure. And I think, you know, those that sort of old adage of boys, boys don't cry um, has probably not, not helped, you know, in the past in terms of encouraging men to access mental health. So this is, it's, it's definitely an, an issue, but I, I do think that there has been an improvement. So certainly in the work that I've done, females are much more likely to access support for um, mental health, but, but we know that males are increasingly uh, starting to access that support. Yes, the problem is, I guess, with males, they have seen it as a sign of weakness in the past, haven't they? Yeah, there's been there's been that sort of fear that it's a sign of weakness. So there's that stigma attached to that. That what will people think of me if I if I need to get help and and put my hand up for help? And you know, perhaps what do I think about people who get help? And is that is that acceptable? So there are all of these sort of internal and and um, external factors, and and there's also <clears throat> just poor mental health literacy. So people, <clears throat> excuse me, people don't actually recognise um, what when they're when they're experiencing depressive symptoms. Sometimes I guess it's up to the sports, isn't it? And they have a duty of care to ensure, ensure the well-being of athletes, but they need to be well aware of what's happening with their in their own clubs and own teams. Definitely, I think we we all have a duty of care in our in our work in sport to look after athletes, and we want to keep athletes in sports that that we love to watch for as long as possible, and and have them leave the sport feeling mentally prepared and psychologically ready. So there's a huge duty of care that we have to athletes, um, so that they they feel ready to pursue life after sport and feel good about their time in sport. You mentioned they're after sport. That is another factor here too, isn't it? Because obviously dealing with with athletes while they're still participating in sport, but beyond their sporting careers, a lot of athletes do suffer depression, don't they? 
Yes, and we know that we know that transitioning out of sport is a is a major trigger for mental health. So it's it's a really important theme, I think, and and something that we do a lot of work in at the AIS. So we have sort of engagement programs, uh, we have a career and education network to try and help athletes to get themselves prepared to manage that transition, because we know that if if athletes leave the sport with with no sort of um, career or study or sort of pathway in mind, it's a significant risk factor for poor mental health. Have you had a close look at the triggers? We mentioned social media there a moment ago, and I guess the, the burden of expectation, that public profile, but there are many other things, including injury and form that, that contribute to mental health. Yes, absolutely. And there are, I guess there are some there are the same triggers that we would see in the general population, such as, you know, relationship breakdown or uh, work stress and those sorts of things. But then there are some really specific athlete ones too, such as, you know, an injury and, and, and rehabilitation, transitioning into sport, out of sport, changing states, living large amounts of time away from home, um, and then also sort of a lack of a lack of non-athlete type identity. So a lot of athletes find that their identity is really wrapped up in being an athlete. And so that that can be a trigger for mental health as well. Another factor too is having spoken to a number of athletes, they look bulletproof on the football field or sporting arena, but they suffer from anxiety. And I know that's one area that you've, you've had a close look at with anxiety disorders in particular. Yes, definitely. So, you know, like depression, anxiety is a really high prevalence uh, disorder in, in both the general population and amongst athletes. And there, there's so much pressure to perform and to perfect. And, and if, they, if they don't perform or they don't do something right, then there's a lot of pressure around why that didn't happen. So we know that anxiety is particularly high prevalence in, in sport and amongst athletes similar to depression. Do you think we're doing enough to combat it and, and to help athletes through this? Look, I think I think we're headed in the right direction and, and certainly I think Australia is is world leading in, in our approach to supporting athletes. So the the program that we have at the AIS is is really um, robust and solid and, and we provide education. So we, we try and prevent mental health and then we provide support. So when athletes do recognise signs of uh, mental health, they know where to get support and we provide that to them free of charge and confidentially. So I think Australia is is world leading and the AIS is world leading, but, but we do have um, always a ways to go and, and, and more research and, um, and strategy around that is, is really important too. Is talking to somebody about it, is that the first step, do you think? Uh, look, I think being able to recognise that, that you might be struggling from something is the first step. So in order to get that help, you really need to be able to identify that that there is something wrong. Um, so whether it's speaking to, you know, a, a family member or a GP or some other trusted person and, and sort of saying, oh, look, I don't, I don't know if I feel right or my sleep hasn't been quite quite right or my appetite's been a bit off and, and just developing some awareness around what you're experiencing or what is and isn't normal for you is, is the first step so that then you can go and get the help you need. Yes, and the uncertainty surrounding, say, the Tokyo Olympic Games on mm. and off again, 
that really does play on the mind of athletes, having spoken to a few of them. And you wonder, you know, how you get out of something like that because you can talk to somebody about it, but there is that uncertainty surrounding whether or not they're going to go ahead. But at the moment, of course, the, the games are going to go ahead. So athletes are training as, as they would normally do, but there is that uncertainty. Yes, and I, I don't I don't envy them in that in that regard. You know, I guess finding the motivation to to sort of continue training when there was so much uncertainty, particularly last year, and and we've done a lot of education around around managing uncertainty. And the fact of the matter is, is you know, it is uncertain. There's a lot in life at the moment that is uncertain, and so how can you how can you manage that uncertainty and find other other areas where you can get some control um, and and cope with that because it's not going away. Yes, is the I guess the theme there control what you can control. Yes, absolutely, and 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 not trying to make something certain that that just isn't. Um, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of stress and anxiety wrapped up in trying to get certainty when when we, we just we just won't get it with some things, particularly around the, the, the global pandemic. Yes, great advice, Mary. Thanks very much for joining us today on Onside and um, great work that you're doing at the moment with regard mental health and high-performance athletes. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. This is Onside, I'm Tim Gable, and we're currently discussing the issue of mental health in sport. Well, Rachel Spawn is one of Australia's greatest ever basketballers. Rachel won two silver and a bronze at the Olympic Games. She played basketball throughout the world. And Rachel Spawn joins us now on Onside. So, Rachel, we look at sports people, we think they're invincible, watching them on the sporting field and on the courts. Yet, yet it's far from the truth, isn't it? There's a lot of self-doubt when it comes to injury and, um, and form. Uh, I, I guess, to a certain degree, it can, contributes to you know the mental state of a, a sports person. But just I, I guess, just how tough is it, sort of, having that persona, yet at the same time having that sometimes self-doubt, mental health issues in the background. Yes, it's a, it can be a really difficult thing to navigate, Tim, because you're right. The public just see us performing they don't see us behind the scenes and the demons that we can be battling and I think um, every athlete would be lying if they felt at some point they were at a real low Um, and I think it's um, probably more obvious in in different sports I know we see cricketers when they have a batting slump and a bowling slump just things like that and I I think um, for me it helps certainly being in a team environment. I can only imagine like being in an individual sport, how that is magnified, but it was definitely present um, for me throughout my career. Can you tell us how you coped with it and what were the triggers for it? Well, the most um, significant one for me was actually um, around the Sydney Olympics. I was playing in the WNBA and I, um, 13 months out from the Sydney Olympics, I did my knee. I had to have a full knee reconstruction. And with most injuries like that, you need 12 months before you're back ready to play. So we had to fast track everything um, for Sydney. And obviously to my relief and delight, um, I was selected in the team on July 15 and September 15 was the opening ceremony. So when you're part of an Olympic Games, you want that those 17 days to be perfect. Unfortunately for me, they weren't. I actually, um, three quarters of the way through the tournament, I came down with bacterial sinusitis and I had to be isolated from the team for four days. 
And so I was not feeling great in a couple of games and I wasn't allowed to play in the quarterfinal. I had to sit in the stands to watch the team. And we went on to win um, silver. Um, so that was amazing in itself. But when I got back, back to Adelaide and started playing WNBL, I just fell in a heap. I was finding training and games as a chore, which was so foreign to me because I love the game so much. And I was actually diagnosed with post-Olympic depression, POD. There was a name mm. for it. Mm. And at the time, I was like, really? That just seemed, I guess, a bit trivial compared to I know some depression that some athletes do get. So I went to a sports psychologist and um, she was actually able to turn it all around for me and made me um, concentrate on all the pos- positives rather than the negatives that I was concentrating on. The fact that we won a silver medal, all of my family was there to support me in the home Olympics. And so probably that after six months, I was able to turn it around. But that was the most, yeah, I guess tested that I ever was. And I was very thankful that I did come out the other side okay. Yes, well, you went on to compete at the Athens Olympic Games in 2004, four years later. But I have spoken to people who have won silver medals at Olympic Games in basketball in the past. And it's a different feeling to winning silver as to winning bronze because when you win bronze, you actually win and there's a feeling of excitement. But when you win silver, you've, you've, you've lost a gold medal. Did you have the same feeling because you won the bronze medal in Atlanta and you won silver medals in 2000 and 2004? Absolutely, Tim, I totally relate to that. That is so true. Um, so in Atlanta, we're all euphoric. We've won the bronze medal. You know, you're jumping around, you're crying, you're happy, you know, celebrating with family. And then silver medal, you've lost your final match. And who celebrates that in the normal world of sport? Um, but Olympics, you have to remember it's so unique. And so you have to think, wow, we're still the second best team in the world. But it is strange because you're not jumping around euphoric and celebrating that you've won silver. You're disappointed because you've just lost the gold. So I, I totally, totally relate to that. And it is quite um, a unique, I guess, situation because um, thankfully, though, I guess you remember who does win the silver medal. I know we don't remember who who lost the AFL grand final in, in 1996, <laughs> but we do remember, you know, who's, who's won those gold, silver, bronze medals. But, it's yeah, you're right. It's definitely something that tests you. But then so much better than coming forth, Tim. <laughs> I is, think that yes. would be the most difficult situation of all. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So what about the burden of expectation, the public profile? Because basketballers, especially, you know, people with your stature, very tall, people recognise you when you walk down the streets or when you're out shopping. How do you, how do you cope with that public profile and people wanting a piece of you for want of a better expression? Yeah. I guess because um, I was on, never on the same level, I, it was always a, um, amazing when you're at the Olympic Games and you find out, you know, how many people were writing to you or emailing you and I'd, you know, probably get a hundred emails or lots of postcards and then you find out that, you know, Kathy Freeman got, I don't know, 30,000 or something. I don't know. So, so many other athletes on a different level or a higher level. But I, in Adelaide, it was, it was a really lovely thing for me, I guess. I, um, the recognition was so well received because everyone was very genuine. But, and I think because I was before the age of social media, Tim, you couldn't read any negative um, thoughts that people were putting down about you. So I escaped that a bit. 
but I certainly went through times where if I wasn't playing well that um, I found that really difficult and probably didn't so much want to be around everyone. And I think the hardest point in my career was 1992 when we didn't qualify for Barcelona. That was so hard because I was 24, ready to go to my first Olympic Games, and we didn't qualify. Um, you know, the women had come forth in Seoul in 88. So there was expectation that we were going to do well. So we felt as a group that we had failed. And I remember how hard it was um, coming home. And I'm from, you know, a little country town in Maribel, and they were pinning their hopes on me having their first Olympian. And so it was really, really hard going home, actually, to see everyone because, yeah, it definitely felt like a failure. And I guess Basketball Australia, they appointed Robbie Kiddie, um, you know, the coach often gets the blame. They appointed Tom, Ma, and, yeah, I guess we all turned it around and we had to stay positive as a group. So that definitely made a difference. And, of course, from, from that point on, we started to have amazing success. Did you have a fear of failure? Is that what you're saying there? That you're worried about how it was going to be perceived because you, you felt as though you'd failed? Absolutely. Um, and, and it goes beyond just the pers- that personal failure because then Basel Australia doesn't get the funding because we didn't um, finish well. So it's very far-reaching when you are playing um, for Australia and international level about all those things. You are thinking about those things as a player because moving forward, that funding is so important. And I guess on a personal level, I've always been, I guess, worried about what other people think. So I tend to let that get to me a little bit too much at times. So I think that's why it was so difficult with all those factors um, yeah, put into the same basket. Tell us how you coped with it because you mentioned a moment ago that you did see a sports psychologist and that effectively focused on the positives. But tell us how you got through it and how it has helped you later in life post your playing days. Yeah, I think it's so important to – I've been – I'm a very positive person, I guess, overall. And Positive self-talk has definitely helped me over my career and I've had an amazing support network and I have been able to talk about how I'm feeling you know, with my partner or with my sister or with a best friend. So I haven't bottled it up, which I think is really important. Um, and I know people talk about that now. You've got to share how you're feeling and tell a mate, ask them if they're okay, all that sort of stuff. So that was something, thankfully, that, I did do and I certainly post my career I was very aware of you know how retired athletes can really get depressed and find it hard because you do lose your identity and and the world of being an elite athlete it's a pretty amazing world you know you get a lot of adulation pats on the back public attention you know this addictiveness to winning and being successful and suddenly all that stops so I was very determined when I retired. I wasn't going to let that affect me. I was already a mum, so I think that really helped me. And then I wanted to have another child when I did retire. So for me, that transition ended up being okay because I had a real purpose in being a mum. I stayed involved in basketball through commentary and junior coaching. So for me, I did have a plan and I thought that really helped me. Yes, because you've got a daughter who's an up-and-coming basketballer as well, haven't you? Yes, so Taya is, um, so she did all the juniors, all the districts, the classic tournaments in Melbourne. So at the moment, Tim, she's just playing for fun in under 23s here. She told me probably 
about 12 months ago she didn't want to play at the elite level so that was fine it is sort of fun and um so it's still wonderful being able to go and watch her play Rachel, can you tell us what you're doing these days? You've, you've got a role with Sport Integrity Australia amongst other roles that you have in the community. Yeah, I I need a lot of um, well, stimulation, Tim. <laughs> so I like having a lot of um, different – I've got a lot of different part-time roles and obviously with Sport Integrity Australia being a clean sport educator – I absolutely love it because I'm back in the elite sporting environment presenting to athletes. I'm talking about passion of, you know, keeping sport clean. So having that role for the last couple of years has been so satisfying. I'm also a presenter for Olympics Unleashed with the Australian Olympic Committee. So that's a wonderful role because we get to go out to schools and talk about our Olympic journey and share, you know, resilient stories and um, goal setting and all that sort of thing with the kids. And I'm still um, commentating with ABC Radio for all the NBL games played in here in Adelaide. So that diversity for me is wonderful. And I guess a great role I had um, was the CEO of the Australian Melanoma Research Foundation for six years. So being involved with a not-for-profit um, charity and just understanding what goes on behind the scenes and organising an event because we had events and it just makes you realise um, you know, even organising a World Cup like next year in Sydney, how much work has to go into something. So, and I'm actually um, very proud to be also involved with the, the World Cup and the Legacy Committee as part of the Oakland Alumni Program. So that's wonderful leading into that next year. Certainly keeping busy. Uh, just what, <laughs> me- what messages do you you give to athletes you're educating about being clean sport athletes uh, but as well as that what what sort of questions do you get in in return what what do people want to find out from you what what do athletes ask you well i guess the main reason for this education is to just rule out um athletes doing accidental or inadvertent doping because when i joined which was then known as ASADA, I was blown away by the fact that 25% of cases that came across um, ASADA's death, the athletes didn't mean to generally do anything wrong. And that's what they're trying to really stamp out because that's what, that's what breaks you know, your heart when you have to ban someone who generally didn't mean to do anything wrong. And, and I guess with athlete supplements is the big issue. So the athletes always um, have quite a few get questions about the supplements and we just say, please don't take them. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, just take the risk out of anything and, you know, you can get what you need for you, through your food and your rehydration um, and your recovery and, and training. So that's, that's a really basic, um, I guess, information and education, but it's always worked. And, yeah, the athletes, they, they come back to you with some pretty amazing um, questions. Obviously, the drug testing process is a big one too, particularly for those that have never been tested because it can be so daunting, particularly if you're under 18, because, you know, going to the toilet is a very private thing. And when you become an elite athlete um, and you have to be drug tested, that is taken away. So it's knowing their rights and responsibilities, so that's often something we're asked a lot too. Yes, can add to the stress, kind of, to, of an it athlete can. preparing for major competition or post-competition. Rachel, some great advice there to, to finish off. And thanks very much for joining Onside today and all the best in, in your many roles. Thank you so much, Tim. Well, this is Onside. We're currently discussing the issue of mental health in sport. And in 1996, Daniel Kowalski won medals in three different disciplines in the pool, the 200, the 400 and the 1500 metres freestyle. He's currently the Olympian Services Manager with the AOC 
and he joins us on Onside. Uh, and Daniel, you're helping the current generation navigate quite a tricky world of sport at the moment. It was a battle that you faced for many years as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean hindsight is a wonderful thing and I, I know nowadays I, I would have done things a lot differently but I, I was of the mindset that unless I, everything that I did was 100% focused to achieving the best swimming physical outcome um, I could get, but that's exactly what I, I would do. And I really feel as though there was – I put too much focus on, on the physical and not enough on the mental. Do you wish that you'd sought help earlier in your career? Yeah, I wish I was able to see past the whole bravado and that getting help um, was a sign of, of weakness and, and vulnerability. Um, very fortunate, you know, back in the day when I was – I was swimming the the evolution of the athlete career and education program, the psychological support. It it was all there, but I feel as though it was ingrained that you, you getting that support and help was actually a, a bad thing. Because uh, you burst on the scene from memory as, as a sixteen year old, didn't you? you? Just missed selection in the nineteen ninety two Barcelona team in the fifteen hundred meters. So you're very much a a champion swimmer from a very early age. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. It, it, it happens really quickly, and and when you obviously you're not developed um, physically or mentally to to be able to sort of well, in my experience, to to cope with all those um, peripheral and external things. It it you had the innocence of it was just a matter of stepping up on on the blocks and, and suing, but it's obviously far more complicated than that when you're getting to the point where getting you know getting the opportunity to represent your country and and for me that naivety and that sort of big starry-eyed sort of look um was valuable in some aspects but it was also detrimental in others yes i did read a quote uh, the other day from you um, you know promoting balance in lives and being true to yourself and all that sort of thing and you said you can't feel like help feel like a, a hypocrite uh, when you haven't been doing it yourself is that a reflection on the sexuality aspect or the mental health and not seeking help? Or what what were you talking about there? Um, a, co- a combination of both. I think um, definitely from from the the mental health and the support coming back from you know in particular the Atlanta Olympics where you know I, I did go in with uh, you know my own expectations and, and probably other people that. Uh, to win the 1500 and then that didn't happen and and it, it just didn't go the way I planned and there's an assumption that you you win three Olympic medals it's something you should be happy and proud of but but I wasn't and I knew that I needed to get help but like I said I, I just saw that as a sign of weakness and vulnerability um, and I, I didn't want to to deal with the fact that I needed the help and I didn't acknowledge or recognize that it was the right thing to do. It wasn't until a lot of years removed that I realized that I was actually doing myself more harm than good by by not getting that help. Um, and obviously through eventually getting that help and coming to terms of who I was as a full person, so recognizing my sexuality and that I'm gay, that what that did was sort of release of the gut fl- the floodgates of sort of other things that I was going through at the time but everything that I put down to was the fact that I came second at the Olympics when I know that wasn't necessarily the the full case 
Have you come to terms with it now? Do you think uh, you know because oh, yeah. You, yeah, be, because you did go through a lot, didn't you, uh, post Atlanta? And you know, I just wondered sort of uh, whether or not it lives with you, or whether or not you can completely you know erase that part of your life to a certain degree where where the where the demons really did impact on you. Yeah, no, it probably took about ten years. It it took ten years to to reconcile um, the Olympic performance and something that I was proud of and could openly talk and be proud of it and and share the vulnerabilities that I felt pre and post. Um, and and that coincided with 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 accepting who I was as well and um, you know being able to verbalise being a, a, a gay man took a, a long time. But you know, I'm I'm more than comfortable now, and I feel very fortunate that um, I've been able to, in some instances, com- combine my learnings both professionally and personally, and being able to 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 you know offer guidance or assistance or um, advice or whatever it may be for for those young and aspiring. It become a very important. Um, I guess advisor to a lot of people in, involved in sport. They do seek your advice as well as being a human rights advocate. It feels very much like you're you're in that space, doesn't it? Uh, as the Olympian Services Manager, helping athletes basically guide a very a, a very tricky pathway. It, it is a very tricky pathway, and um, I think the the fact that we have roles throughout the sporting network, whether you're an athlete wellbeing an engagement manager through the IAIS and, and those roles or in my roles or similar roles at uh, Paralympics Australia or the Commonwealth Games Association, um, the, the resources are there um, and we do everything we can to, to let the athletes know that they're there. But at the end of the day, it's still the the uptake, the onus is on the athlete to know that it's there and, and take advantage of it. And it's different for every individual. Um, these conversations, um, like it or not, need to start earlier in the pathway because you can't be getting to a point where we've seen in the last year that you have a global pandemic and then all of a sudden your world's turned upside down uh, for something that's totally out of your control. Um, as opposed to you miss an Olympic or Paralympic Games and then what am I going to do? You know, these these roles and people are there for a reason and educating them to tap into it is, is something that is still a challenge though. Yes, there is a fair bit of bravado, especially when it comes to male sports and, you know, you've got to have this air of invincibility and, you know, any sign of seeking help is seen as a weakness. You've got to get rid of that in, in a lot of sport, haven't you, especially in male sport? Uh, exactly right. And, and I think it's compounded now because you have a number of platforms in which you can demonstrate your best life through a photo on on an app for example and and that may not in fact be the case and it, it is it is a cover or it is a way of making yourself feel good but we know that that's that's definitely not the case and so how do you drop your guard and show an element of vulnerability that doesn't compromise performance and I think it takes role models or people to lead the way to be able to do that and I think it is happening slowly over time but a career is so short in terms of an athletic life that if you don't capitalise on it earlier then you're really wasting opportunities and your best athletic years. You also had to battle injury and illness, didn't you? I remember you had uh, glandular fever. I think at one stage there you had food poisoning, your viral infections. I tend to think and remember that you had shoulder surgery as well. 
and it was, you know, overcoming those barriers as well as, you know, whatever else was happening, whether it be form or, you know, sort of how you're getting on in life, you had to overcome a lot of other stuff as well. Yeah, the shoulders were, were probably the most debilitating and draining from a mental point of view because physically, um, you know, the one thing that is paramount in, in the sport of swimming is your arms um, mm. and not being able to use them or, and get a, you know, a training base that I required was was ultimately why I chose to sort of hang the swimmers up because I, I just I couldn't I couldn't get to the level that I needed to get to you know keeping in mind I'm, I'm trying to keep up with the likes of Ian Thorpe and Grant Hackett like if you don't have our optimum performance it was it was never going to happen so for me that was probably the hardest thing that I dealt with in, in my career. Why do you think swimmers seem to have issues? post olympic careers and post swimming careers is it is it the sport itself or is it other issues involved there because it's a it, it can be a very lonely sport you know spending so much time virtually by yourself swimming back and forth along that black line yeah it's a catch-22 isn't it um because we know about the more recent cases um sadly scott miller in recent days because it is a high profile sport i i don't I, obviously, I don't know statistics, but I think because of a profile, you know, it's more likely to get a run um, in the mainstream media, but it doesn't mean that it's the only sport. I think a lot of sports are very um, um, siloed in the sense that it, it is you against, you know, the rest of, of the world. Um, but I think that's the nature of sport. You You have traits and characteristics that separate you from the rest of the country, the rest of the world that help you get to that point. It's being able to to find that balance. It's being able to surround yourself with a great support network. Um, and those things are, are not easy. Um, as we've seen, sadly, for some of my teammates and fellow dolphins, but um, how you how you solve that um obviously we're still we're still trying to figure out and as i've alluded to a couple of times the resources are there um but it's not just for the athletes it's for the entourage and those people around they need to be acutely aware of what is available as well yes you're absolutely right there the promotion of the positives is is very important um daniel just wanted to go back to 1996 from the highlight reel and you became the first male swimmer in 92 years to win medals in the 200, 400 and 1500 metres freestyle. We might go back and listen to that final in 1996 in Atlanta in the 1500 metres and what a great battle it was because at one stage there heading towards the home straight, you were in third place in that great battle with Graham Smith, Kieran Perkins out in front, but here it is, a little of that race. Coming down to complete 1400, Kieran Perkins is well clear. Smith is second, Kowalski is third. And he's got a lead of about 20 metres. Daniel's got to get some, the bit between his teeth. We can go one, two here. Come on, Daniel, fight for that silver, son. Yep. And look at Kowalski coming for the silver. Go, Kowalski coming after Smith will bring Perkins in. About 15 metres to swim. This is where goal. The best kind of goal. Perkins goes in first. What a great win. And a race for second. A race for the silver. Smith and Kowalski. They come down to the wall after 1,500. Yes! Kowalski got it. 
great finish. I, I was there poolside. I remember it so vividly, even to this day. And uh, Perkins on one side of the pool, you in the middle. I think uh, in the end, uh, your time was um, 15.02.43 and Graeme Smith was 15.02.48. That's how close it was at the finish. And, and you just had this Herculean uh, 50 metres left in you uh, to, to win the silver medal. It was a great performance. Yeah, it's, it's funny because... Um, Whilst I've come to terms with the performances and, and proud of them, it, it doesn't mean that I'm still not disappointed. Um, you know, that time was, you know, 10 seconds slower than my best and Olympic Games is you want to you beat your best. And I, I guess if I wasn't, if I wasn't my best, um, I would have beaten Kieran on the day, but Kieran was far from his best as well. So, um, and just showed you what a true champion he was, the, the mental toughness that he was able to invoke to be able to get himself up to, to do that was, was incredible. So I am proud of it, but it, it sort of means I'm not disappointed. Yeah, so you mentioned there, you know, if you'd been at your best and 10 seconds you know, beyond your best time, if you if you had recorded your best time, of course, uh, with Kieran I think, doing 15, uh, 14.56, so you would have been um, well in front of him there. And he only just made it through to the Olympic Games in the first place through the qualifying at the Australian Championship. So it was a, 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 both of you, an amazing story just where you finished up. It was a good field too, though, wasn't it? With, uh, as well as yourself, you had Hoffman, Brambilla, you had Smith there who finished third, Neithling. Very quality field. It was one of the highlights of the Olympic Games in terms of theatre. How, how do you reflect on it now? I know you, you're disappointed that you, you didn't win the gold medal, but how do you reflect on that race? Have you been able to analyse it and sort of go through it? over these years? I've never watched it in its entirety. Um, and I don't know if I, I ever will. Um, but I'm extremely grateful and proud to have been a part of it um, because, as I just touched on, Kieran's performance, considering, as you mentioned, he only just sort of scraped into the team um, and then his heat literally just scraped into the final I think what he demonstrated is an incredible lesson for, for young athletes and just those who need to draw on mental strength to be able to achieve a goal or outcome. That right there is the perfect e example. Um, I think along with someone like Kathy Freeman's race in 2000, when you're dealing with those external pressures, he had the internal ones. And for him to be able to to do that, um, it's just – it's it's textbook. It's it's what you want to be able to show people about the power of the mind. And um, for me, you know, whilst I got second, I love the fact that um, I was still able to get on that podium and hear the Australian anthem played. Those those, those little things um, are really important. And it's it's the things that no one can ever take away from you. And I take solace in that. What did it mean to you to, to win medals in the 200, 400 and 1500 metres freestyle? As I say, becoming the first male to do so in 92 years. That, that is um, incredibly, incredibly significant. Yeah, the 200 was probably the one I was most proud of because, I mean, I, I wasn't even really earmarked to make the final. Um, so to get the medal was was an absolute bonus and, and the most fun of them all. If I could have any of them over again, I'd probably take the 400 over the 1500 to do again because I had that perfect combination at that point of time of speed and endurance. Um, it's what sat between my ears that let me down. Um, but, you know, I I think 
I, I was a part of an era that was extremely successful. Um, and so you're surrounded by so many incredible swimmers and achieving incredible results. Um, so I never really felt as though um, what I achieved was anything noteworthy because of, of what my teammates were mm. achieving. Um, and it takes a lot of time, a lot of years removed, sorry, to, to put it into perspective and, and be something that I'm proud of. Just as a, a final question, as you reflect on your Olympic career, it sounds like you, you really come to terms with the fact, you know, what happened at Atlanta, but there must be an, an incredible sense of pride in what you did when you when you reflect on what you did. Um, there is, and I, I'm very fortunate because I get to work in, in the environment on, on a daily basis and you, you see the lengths that athletes go through the support that they get and guidance from their coaches and support staff and their families. And it really puts into perspective um, what myself and, and those around me did for me to be able to get that end result. Um, so there is that sense of, of pride, but um, also um, it's also motivation for me, me to be able to assist and provide an environment on a daily basis for those who are still trying to achieve. Yes, uh, Olympians of the future, certainly in good hands with you around, Daniel. Thanks very much for joining us today on Onside and um, well done on your career and uh, doing some great work with the Olympic Committee and the Olympian Services. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tim. And now for our segment from Left Field, where we answer a question from the public. Hi, my name's Annabelle. I'm a competitive sport climber and an athlete educator. The question I have from Left to Field today is, do you find out the results from your drug test immediately or later on? You won't find out the results of your blood or urine sample until the lab has had time to run all of the necessary tests. You will only be notified if you test positive to a banned substance, so no news is good news. Thanks for listening to Onside. I'm Tim Gable. See you soon for the next episode. And episodes are released monthly. You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au or check out our Clean Sport app.